This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that you would once again speak to us by and through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. At the start of Jesus' ministry, he quickly caught people's attention. Our gospel passage this morning begins after Jesus' baptism and his time of testing and temptation in the wilderness. Luke tells us, Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues, and was praised by everyone. When Jesus went to his hometown synagogue and read from the scriptures, I guess people paid very close attention. Luke describes the scene in some detail. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where he was going to read from. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to release, uh, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke tells us he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant and sits down. Rabbis in those days would sit down to teach. Luke then tells us the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I imagine a hush, a pregnant silence. I imagine no one was checking their cell phones. And Jesus then says what probably no one there expected him to say. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the reason that this was so significant is that there in that room on that day, Jesus was saying that he himself was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He was what everyone had been waiting for. He was the fulfillment of the law. In its original setting, the passage from Isaiah referred to God's promise to bring Israel out of exile. And now, Jesus is applying it to himself. Jesus, by his very presence and in his very person, has inaugurated God's reign. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus is to be the very central focus. This epiphany season is a season filled with manifestations of God's glory. It is a revelation of God, epiphanies of God. And we saw that two weeks ago in Christ's baptism. And you remember the heavens are torn apart and the spirit descends like a dove saying, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him. 
And then last week, we, we saw the very first miracle Jesus did, that extraordinary changing of, of water into wine. And today, we see Jesus preaching in his hometown, in his home synagogue. You know, nowadays, we, we need to remind ourselves that it's not all about us. Well, Jesus, in essence, is sitting there saying, in front of all the people who gathered to see him, it is about me. It's all about me. This prophecy of hope and redemption was being cast afresh by Jesus as he applies it to himself. If you want light and life and freedom, Jesus says, come to me. And at first, when they heard him say this, they were impressed. The very next verse, which we didn't read, says this. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Except had we read on just eight more verses, we would have found that they very quickly became furious with him and they didn't like what he had to say one bit. In fact, they were so angry that they got up, drove him to the edge of the town and tried to kill him by throwing him off the cliffs on which Nazareth, Nazareth is built. But I don't want to steal Tish's thunder for next week when we'll get to that next section of the passage. But the thing about Jesus' teaching was that it was so very often shocking, surprising, challenging, even disquieting. To many who heard him, what he said challenged them to the core. It challenged their basic beliefs. It challenged their religion. It challenged their very identity. Jesus didn't come to set up an institution or a religion, but rather to proclaim that God was concerned about all the people, including even, maybe especially, the people who were not present, the people who were not in the synagogue, all the people who the great and the good of the time rather despised, the poor, the oppressed, the imprisoned, the blind. And you know, that's still true today. I think sometimes we can forget the radical nature of the good news of Jesus. It's possible for us to get swept along and caught up in a sort of institutional churchianity rather than in a radical movement following after Jesus with radical love for those outside the church. And this season of Epiphany is all about the light shining in the darkness, about making God known. Jesus made God visible in a way that had never happened before. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What Jesus said was being fulfilled in his presence then is still true today. But if we are not experiencing the release from captivity and the good news of the gospel, then perhaps it is because we've forgotten who we are as Christians and who we are as the body of Christ, as the church. And it's possible for us to misappropriate, misread, misunderstand this famous text this morning. Some people have used it as a sort of political, uh, socio-political manifesto. And that way of looking at the text has been applied to undergird, in some places, liberation theology, which in effect uh, prescribes the church's primary mission as being to liberate people 
um, from poverty and oppression by whatever means possible in a very political way. Now, certainly, the church should be concerned and is about poverty and hunger. We should be in the business of helping people to have access to clean water and health and education. Indeed, throughout the, his the history of the church, which I know has been checkered, but the church has very often been concerned about these things in a good way and has been at the forefront of protecting the weak and the marginalized. I think of people like William Wilberforce, who spent his entire life fighting against slavery. Or I think of the countless mission hospitals and schools established all over the world. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes further. Well, another way that Jesus' words have been misapplied is by those who take them to give great license to behave in ways that the Bible actually prohibits. So if I feel oppressed or not affirmed in my beliefs or my actions, then Jesus in this statement gives me a free pass because it's, it's liberty and freedom and, and I get to do whatever I want. And then there are those who misuse this text in another way. They kind of super-spiritualize it saying that the good news of God isn't actually concerned about the physically poor or actual prisoners or people who are outcast. Rather, it's an affirmation that God is on the side of those who are deeply religious, those who are devout, those who are therefore necessarily in God's favor. Indeed, this third bad interpretation is pretty much, I think, what a lot of people in the synagogue probably thought. Certainly the religious leaders of the day did. And when Jesus illustrates precisely why that was not the case, that's when they get mad at him and try and kill him. But that's for next week. So what is the gospel all about? And what is the role of the church? Well, I think we have to really engage with the text of these words because they spell it out. It is good news for the poor. And that includes those who are materially poor and those who are spiritually poor. Just as Jesus fed the hungry physically and spiritually, so too are we to do likewise. One example of that might be uh, where we can have skin in the game, so to speak, is by helping to support the ministry of Shepherd's Heart Fellowship. Um, and there are many other things we could do. But that fellowship is a church in Uptown that exists for the homeless and the poor and the destitute where every week folks from under the bridges and the shelters are made welcome and they're fed a hot meal and they're fed bread and wine. We're to proclaim release to the captives. Again, that may be physically or spiritually. I thank God for the Kairos prison ministry that a number in our church family are involved with. In fact, many were here yesterday preparing for that. A ministry that takes the gospel of hope into prisons. We're to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. How many all around us are blind to the work of God, blind to pervasive sin that ensnares and entangles and messes up lives. How we need the Holy Spirit to shine light into the darkness. We're to proclaim freedom to those who are oppressed, to those who are living without the light 
and life of Christ. As many of you know, I and a small team recently returned from Thailand where we saw a little of the work of the Anglican Church in that place. And during our time away, we got to witness how this prophecy that Jesus fulfilled in Nazareth is being lived out in Thailand. And it was both a very challenging and inspiring experience. We visited a church plant in Chiang Mai and the kindergarten and community outreach that they've started. In Bangkok, we got to visit a shelter for those who had nowhere to stay while attending hospital in the city, a sort of, you know, Ronald McDonald family house like we have around the corner, but run by the Anglican Church. We saw another church by the airport in the heart of the hustle and bustle of one of Asia's most populated cities, and we met with local Thai leaders running a student outreach on the campus of the university at Lac Krabang. These Anglican Christians were sharing the good news with the poor, the needy, and those who simply had never heard of Jesus. Thailand is a country of 68 million people with less than 1% who are Christ followers. There are 500, just 500 official Anglicans in Thailand. There are another 4,000 who are in a refugee camp on the border with Myanmar but they're kind of stateless, so they're not counted in that, in that number. But the opportunities to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor are simply huge. Southeast Asia is one of the most unchristian parts of the planet. And through the Diocese of Singapore, there is extraordinary passion and vision for the gospel. That diocese, which is a fairly small diocese, about 20,000 in uh, Singapore, has established six deaneries set up to carry out the great commission of our Lord and proclaim the good news of Jesus to people in Nepal, Laos, Thailand, Indonesia, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And we were, we were humbled. We were challenged. We were excited to see what we saw and, and to contemplate what will come of the invitation we've received to partner with the church in Thailand. They're not asking for our money. They want relationship. They need teachers, short term or longer term. They need help with training. They want help with things like their music and liturgy. And many of the things that, frankly, we've got in spades. But much more, they've got something that I believe we desperately need. They have a passion, a passion for the lost, a heart for the poor, and a commitment to do whatever it takes to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And over the coming months, I would love for you to join me in praying about what God may be calling ascension to in the next five or ten years. How will the words of the prophet Isaiah, read and fulfilled by Jesus in Nazareth, and passed on to us as our mandate to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captive and sight to the blind, how 
will this charge be fulfilled in us? Now, we know as we think about the next five to ten years, actually much sooner, we know that we've got to fix up this building. And that's going to take sacrificial giving by us to do so. But if that's all we do, fix these old stones, well, then shame on us. Shame on us. For we're surrounded by tens of thousands of people who do not know Jesus. What can we do more effectively to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to our neighbors? What can we do more effectively to play our part and use the extraordinary gifts that God has given us to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to the ends of the earth? How are we being called to use the resources that have been entrusted to us with our buildings, with our people, with our finances, with the many gifts God's given us? How are we to be a much brighter beacon of hope and light and love? What should we be doing to make this facility serve the great commandments and the great commission beyond fixing the stonework? What else? Now, of course, Jesus is no longer here in body, but he is here. He is with us through the Holy Spirit and this is the truth we need to reaffirm, rediscover, reclaim. We are his body. And of course, that's what St. Paul was stressing to the church at Corinth. The church is Jesus' body here on earth today. And so as Jesus stood before the people and said that it's all about me, all about him, and they could see his life and his teaching, his love and his sacrifice. So today, in a way, we're to do the same thing. It's all about Jesus, his work, his forgiveness, following in his way. And yet, the scary thing is, how people actually encounter Jesus is, well, it's through you and me. It's through us. It's through the church. And I say scary because if we are the living, breathing representatives of Jesus today, how are we doing? When people look at us, do they see good news for the poor, release for the captive, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed? How are we proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor? Paul writes, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. This is powerful. This is challenging. And at the start of our reading, Paul stressed the fact that there's only one body, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. It's the Holy Spirit who gives true life to the church. And the church cannot exist as the body of Christ without the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be baptized. We need to be immersed. We need to be drenched with the Holy Spirit. That's what the word baptism literally means, being drenched, immersed. Again and again and again. And extraordinary things happen 
when the supernatural God dwells in the hearts and minds of his people, his church, his body. We need to be the people that God has called us to be and has made us to be and has equipped us to be. We need to be who we are, the body of Christ. And that life that we need to have and exhibit comes only through God's Holy Spirit. What a rich picture we have of the church. No wonder Paul spends the rest of that chapter, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, unpacking it. He goes to great lengths to stress that there's no inferiority in the body of Christ. The body's not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a foot, uh, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And I think we need to be reminded and make sure that we don't look around the church and get jealous of someone else's gift or resent that which God has entrusted to us. The Spirit gives life to the body as a whole. And so what brings life and vision in our church is not a particular gift that one may have, but rather the gift giver, the Holy Spirit. There's no cloning or imitation in the body of Christ. As Paul says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And so for us today in our context, we need to be careful, I think, by our words and actions that we not fall into the trap of, of writing others off as thinking that we somehow don't need certain people. Let there be no sense of saying to those who are different from us, whether here or whether across the globe, we have no need of you. Rather, let us first take a careful look in the mirror and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And let the spotlight of truth and love shine on us into the dark places of our own lives and the sins that lurk there, whatever they are, sins of pride or greed or self-righteousness, of lust or affluence, of complacency, of judging others. The church is Christ's body. And just as I hope we, we take care of our own bodies, we need to take care of his. We need to care for one another. Paul says that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And you know, that ought to be true, but I'm not sure that it always is. And I suspect that like a person who's been left out in the cold can no longer feel the pain in their frostbitten feet, we too can grow cold or distant toward one another, that we fail to feel one another's pain or, or even share one another's joys. That can be equally hard too, to share in the joy of another when we're not feeling that joy. But we are called, we are set apart we are baptized to be Jesus for other people. We are his body. We're called to live out the gospel to relatives, friends, neighbors who may be imprisoned by fear or loneliness or guilt or addiction. We're here to embody Jesus to those who are spiritually blind or hurt or lost, to everyone who does not know and experience the love of God. Oh, that today 
the words of Isaiah as echoed by Jesus would once again be fulfilled in us. Let us live out our calling to be Christ's body today and always in our neighborhoods, in this city, and to the ends of the earth. Amen.